Romans 4, verses 20 through through 25. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come now and seek your help once more for the ministry of the Word from this great book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world. Who is sufficient for these things? Come, Father, I pray, and give us your help. Grant to those who are listening a sweet, attentive, docile, understanding mind and spirit, I pray. And grant to me an anointing from the Holy Spirit that will make my words more than mere human words, that would be life-changing and hope-giving and pride-humbling and God-exalting and church-unifying and missions-mobilizing and family-healing and a thousand needs to be met, Lord, that I can't even imagine. We love your word. It is like five loaves and two fish in the hand of the Savior, able to feed expanses of people who are not even in this room. So, Lord, minister now this word in power for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I said last week that I was going to try to take up three questions that I didn't have time for last week, and I can only do two of them. One of the reasons that I can only do two is because uh, one of them, as it turns out, in view of what was published in the counterpoint of the Star Tribune yesterday, is so amazingly relevant for our contemporary situation in Jewish-Christian relations that I had to linger over it a little longer. So... I'll be back to that in a minute, but that's a partial explanation for why I don't get through all three. So here are the two that I will try to tackle this morning that are rooted in this text and then uh, based on the wider understanding of this chapter. Remember, the first question I raised last week was, if we're justified by faith alone, apart from works, as this chapter has been teaching, why is it faith in particular that, that God ordains as the means by which we get right with God? Why isn't it some other instrument that God uses other than faith? What is it about faith that makes it such a well-designed instrument or means by which we get connected with God and are justified by Him, that is made right and set right with Him, acquitted, accepted, forgiven, Now, to answer that question, let's make sure we get the wider context before us. Romans 4 is really quite remarkable because an entire chapter is devoted in this 16-chapter book 
an entire chapter is devoted to the justification of Abraham. The whole chapter is about Abraham, the father of Israel, being justified by faith apart from works. And you might scratch your head and say, why so much space devoted to a historic person and not us? What's the point? And what it does is show us how amazingly interested Paul is in the Jewish question. How does the church in Rome, Christian church in Rome, relate to Judaism? That's the issue. It's a big issue today in Minneapolis. How does this church on this corner meeting on Sunday morning relate to Temple Israel on over on Hennepin Avenue that meets on Friday evening? What's the relationship between this reality? And, and not much has changed, as I read in the paper. So Paul remarkably devotes an entire chapter to the father of Israel to show something utterly crucial to him. Doesn't seem crucial to a lot of people today, but it was absolutely crucial to Paul. Namely, the way this first Jew got right with God is exactly the same way you Gentiles today get right with God. He is so interested in continuity, in harmony between Judaism and how it relates to God and Christianity and how it relates to God that he doesn't want to think of two religions. If you ask Paul, are you a Jew or are you a Christian? He just scratches his head. I'm a Jewish Christian. Christians are true Israelites. They have only one hope. Abraham is their father. They've been grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. Salvation is of the Jews. We have only one hope as Gentile Christians, that God keeps his promises to Abraham and to Israel. That's our hope. So it is massively important just to realize the entirety of this chapter 4 is all about Abraham and us who have the faith of Abraham and thus relate as children of promise, just like he did to this God, because we're all justified by faith. Now, that's the context in which we ask the question, why faith? Why was it faith for Abraham? Why is it faith for us today, by which we get right with a holy God and get connected with Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us to cover all of our sins and to impute to us a righteousness not our own. Why faith? Why does it do that? Now, there are three reasons in this chapter, at least, and I've showed them to you before, so let me just highlight them briefly. Number one, it is faith because faith glorifies God. Now, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 22 is very important here. You see the word therefore at the beginning of verse 22? It's referring back to something on which verse 22 is based. And what verse 22 says is, therefore, 
it, faith, was reckoned or credited to Abraham as righteousness. So wherefore was faith? Why is it faith that was credited to him as righteousness? And the answer is in verse 20 and 21. Abraham grew strong in faith. You see that in 20? Abraham grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And he didn't waver. He was confident that the promises would be fulfilled. Therefore, you see the connection? Therefore, faith is credited to him as righteousness. So our first answer to the question is, God has designed that justification be by faith alone because this glorifies God. Answer number two. It's because faith in justification is the only state of the human heart that accords with grace. And grace is the only sovereign divine power that can make your salvation and your promise sure. And God wants it to be sure. Now I get this from verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith. Why? In order that... It may be in accordance with grace. Why? Why would you want to be in accordance with grace? So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, including Jews and Gentiles. So here you have the faith-grace-certainty connection that we've already seen. But I want you to see it again and notice why faith is so crucial. Faith is designed as the way to get connected with the righteousness of God because it's the only thing in justification that accords with grace. And grace is the only power that can make the promise sure for you. If God left it up to you for your salvation and your inheritance to be firm, it wouldn't be firm. You're fickle. God is not fickle. Grace is not fickle. It is almighty power. And therefore God, by grace, ordains to bring his people home. And so what must they do? One thing accords with that. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him to do it. And that's why faith, secondly, is what he ordains as the way to get right with him. The third reason that faith is ordained by God as the way of justification is because it humbles us and excludes boasting. Chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Faith excludes boasting. So let's sum up the answer to this first question. Three things. God has designed the way for you to get right with God through one instrument in justification, namely faith. Why? Number one, it glorifies God. Number two, it humbles pride and removes boasting. Number three, it accords with grace, which alone makes the promise sure. God gets exalted we get humbled and salvation is made rock solid by grace. That's the answer to question number one. Now, yesterday's newspaper. It's amazing. I was stunned. Not because there was anything shocking about the criticism in the articles. Let me bring some of you up to speed. Four weeks ago now, I believe it was, 
there was the lead editorial in the Tribune on Rosh Hashanah, High Holy Day in the Jewish community, beginning of the new year, which criticized, this lead editorial in the Tribune, criticized the Southern Baptists and really all people who share this conviction when they called all Christians to pray for Jewish people that they would believe on Jesus and be saved. Ooh, that is fighting language in this pluralistic age. And therefore, the editorial called it arrogant to do that. To presume that you know the way to be saved and that you should pray for others to see it, believe it, and enjoy it. Well, that Sunday, I mentioned it and I said, pray for me because I'd like to write a response to this and see if they put it in there because they've never ever put anything in there that I've written. And I wrote it and, and emailed it to them and they did. Saturday a week ago. Well, the responses came yesterday. Two letters and one article. And they were wonderfully provocative to show how incredibly relevant the New Testament is today. Nothing has changed. It is amazing what is in those letters. Get your paper out and read the letters and the article to see how unbelievably relevant Romans 4 is in the situation in Minneapolis and all over America today. For example, in one of the letters... One of the writers said this, quote, The truth is that Jews cannot accept Jesus as Messiah because they have never seen Jesus as having fulfilled the basic ancient Jewish requirements for Messiah, who was never supposed to have died the ignominious death of a criminal. Observant Jews have believed that, quote, anyone hung on a tree is under a curse. Deuteronomy 21, 22, close quote. That's amazing. Because it's exactly what Paul met with in the churches. And so he wrote Galatians 3 like this. Christ equal Christos, equal Mashiach, equal Messiah. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yes. Yes, you can't you you can't have a Messiah cursed for his own sins. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so to this day, just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, to Greeks, the cross, this tree, is foolishness. And to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. It's, it's still causing people to quote the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and stumble over it. Now, what are you going to say at lunch tomorrow? Go home today and cut this letter out. And open your Bible to Isaiah 53 
And put the article in your Bible. It's Isaiah 53. Close your Bible and take it to work tomorrow. And then bring up the issue of Jewish-Christian relations. And with your Jewish friend, have them read this letter and say, you believe that? Is that you agree with this letter? I say, yeah, I think that's what we believe. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. It says right here in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then verse 12, He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And say, you know, your own Bible predicts a suffering, dying, cursed with transgressors Messiah. Who doesn't die because he's cursed, because he's evil, but because you and I are evil. And we need a sin bearer. And we have a Jewish sin bearer. Promise of the entire people of Israel right here in your own Bible. And I'm resting in him. Would you rest in him? And if they say, that's not the way we interpret Isaiah 53. We don't think this is referring to the Messiah. We think it's referring to the people of Israel as the suffering servant. And so the people of Israel collectively are the suffering servant and they suffer in the world like the Holocaust and bring good to the world. To that you should respond by saying, but that won't work. Yes, you've suffered. Yes, we've done terrible evils. We're sorry, but that won't work in Isaiah 53 because in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is suffering for the people. He can't be the people and be suffering for the people. He is suffering for the people. He is one of you. And Jesus is such a perfect fulfillment of all of these promises. And then you might even read verse 11 in relation to Romans 4, where it says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. He will see our redemption through him. And be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many and bear their iniquities. The doctrine of justification by faith is there in Isaiah 53. And the basis of it is a bleeding, dying Messiah being pierced through for the sins of his people. It is amazing when you read these simple statements in the paper today that nothing has changed. The veil is still there. And where Christ is preached, the veil can be lifted. Oh, that you and I would know the sweetness of the doctrine of justification by faith taught in the Jewish scriptures, which is why Romans 4 deals with Abraham as much as it does, so that we could say with love and compassion and yearning and tears to all of our Jewish friends, embrace your Messiah. We don't want to intrude. We don't want to explode anything. We don't want to ruin any tradition. We want to embrace. We want to be a part of it. Jesus 
said you are the key and we want to be in through the Messiah and participate in the rich root of the Abrahamic covenant. And we do. And it looks like you are, are like a branch broken off instead of a branch exulting in and glorying in all the promises made for justification by faith. Now, the article is what makes that issue of justification by faith even more prominent. The article, it's a whole article with a picture on top of it, says after distorting the Christian teaching about faith alone by saying it doesn't have any moral effects on people or doesn't have to, which is not what we believe, she says this teaching, namely salvation by faith in Jesus the Messiah, This teaching is absolutely antithetical to Judaism, which holds that people are judged by their creator on the basis of their actions in this world. Nothing has changed. The issue of works and faith is exactly the issue. I tell you, the Bible is a relevant book. The Bible is up to date. If you care about people. Of course, if you just care about the Vikings and wish you were out of this service, then the Bible will be utterly irrelevant to you and just a big waste of time. But if you see big issues at stake in this city, You know Jewish friends. Some of you are Jewish in this room and have Jewish loved ones that you care about. If that's a big issue for you, the Bible will just explode with relevance in this setting in which we find ourselves today. So that's question number one and its amazing relevance for the Star Tribune in Saturday edition counterpoint. One more question. Only one. I asked last week, secondly, if it's faith that glorifies God, humbles my pride, secures my salvation, makes it firm through grace, then what sort of faith does this? And the way I posed the question was, was it Abraham's faith that he had in Ur the Chaldees when he first heard God saying, go to the promised land, and he believed him? Or was it Genesis 15, 6 faith where God said, look at the sky, it's full of stars, so shall your descendants be? And he believed him. Or was it chapter 17 where he's 99 years old, he's had a baby through Hagar, Ishmael, and he doesn't think he can have a baby through Sarah, she's barren, he's 99. And God says, next year you got your own son through that woman and this body. And he believed him. Or was it chapter 22 where this son... Born in his old age, Isaac, he's called upon to sacrifice. And he believed God could raise him from the dead when he took him up there on the mountain. Which of those acts of faith justified Abraham? The first one? The second one? Or is it a whole life of faith that justifies Abraham? Now, there are two facts in chapter 4 that help us answer that question. Fact number one. In verse 3 of Romans 4, there's a quotation of Genesis 15, 6. 
And Paul says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That faith was the instrument by which Abraham was justified. He was justified at Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 4, 3. That's fact number one. Fact number two comes in verses 19 to 21. And here you have a different situation being described. You have Abraham and he's 99 years old. You have Sarah and she's barren with a dead womb. And you have God promising a son. And you have Abraham, verse 19, I'll read it. Without, coming, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, which was now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. So he didn't become weak in faith. And he gave glory to God. And now verse 22, Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. So the faith that came 13 years after Genesis 15, 6, because that's how old Ishmael was in Genesis 17, at least 13, maybe more, at least 13 years after his first well, probably not his first act, but the act where he is justified in Genesis 15, 6. This act is said to be that which justifies or which is reckoned or credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. So now what's the upshot of these two facts? First, let's settle it. Abraham exercised faith. In Genesis 15, and God reckoned him righteous for it. He trusted God in Genesis 17, 13 years later. And Romans 4, 19 to 22 says, God justified him for it. So what do we conclude? Here's what I conclude. Abraham was justified fully with a perfect justification on his first act of faith. God reckoned him righteous for his first act of faith. Justification is not a process. It's a verdict. It's a singular act whereby God reckons you to be righteous, not because you are in actuality, but because Christ is and his righteousness is made over to Abraham's account, even though it was to come many Years later. So the first act of saving faith justifies. God designs it so. But when it says in verses 19 to 22 that God reckoned this faith for righteousness, that true, that too is true. So we are justified through our initial act of faith and we're justified through the ongoing acts of faith. And one way to put those two together would be this, that when God looks upon that first act of saving faith, he sees it as containing by his design 
all subsequent acts of faith flowing out from it. So that at any given point along the way, he could look at any one of your faiths, any one of your experiences of faith and say, you are justified through that. Another way to say it would be that your first act of faith by grace is like an acorn out of which a tree grows and that tree is in the acorn and God justifying you on the basis of persevering tree-like faith sees it all when he looks upon that first act of faith and makes that the occasion of your justification. Let me me use the words of Jonathan Edwards here. Here's what Edwards says about this issue. God, in the act of justification, which is passed on a sinner's first believing, has respect to perseverance as being virtually contained in the first act of faith. And persevering in faith is looked upon as being, as it were, a property of that first act of faith. God has respect to the believer's continuance in faith, and he is justified by that as though it already were, because by divine establishment it shall follow. Now, I think that's right. I think Edwards is absolutely right. Let me say it again and then draw out three concluding applications for our lives. What this text is saying is that the faith to which God looks when he justifies us through faith alone is a kind of faith which perseveres. By God's design, so that he can look at that faith in its first twinkling awakening and say, not guilty. You are justified, accepted, forgiven, and the righteousness of my son is yours on the basis of that faith. And he can look at any point in the unfolding of that faith throughout your life and say, for this you are justified, and for this you are justified, and for this you are justified. So the continuance of faith is the faith which justifies. And the reason you can say, I am and have been justified, as chapter 5, verse 1 does say, having been justified, is because that perseverance is a property, as it were, contained in the authenticity of the first act of saving faith. Now, let's draw out some implications of this practically for our lives. And they are wonderful. They are wonderful. Number one, the first implication is this. Full and unshakable justification is given through one simple initial act of faith. And if you have it, you can experience the assurance of your everlasting salvation from the very beginning of your Christian life. It is so crucial that you understand justification does not come in pieces. 
You don't get a piece of justification in your first act of faith and then get another piece of justification the next day when you believe and get another piece of justification on the third day when you believe. And maybe if you believe enough days, you get enough pieces of justification so that the end of the last judgment, God will see enough pieces of his justification and you'll be saved forever. That is not what justification is. A verdict is indivisible. Not guilty is not guilty. It has no pieces. Forgiven is forgiven. Accepted is accepted. In Christ is in Christ. Nobody is half in and half out. Nobody. There is no half in, half out. Either you're in Christ or you're outside Christ. If you're, at, if you're outside Christ, you have none of Christ. If you're inside Christ, you have all of Christ. And all of Christ means his righteousness that he executed in his life and death and his propitiation of the Father's wrath when he died on the cross and his redeeming from all your sins. All of that is made over to you in an act of imputation or reckoning or crediting by faith at the very first act. Doesn't come in pieces. Sanctification comes in pieces. That is, living it out. And one of the reasons this is such good news is because everybody in this room knows we are a fraction Christian. I'm a piecemeal Christian. My justification is not piecemeal. I'm piecemeal. I have a long way to go in the Christian life. I have many things I need to overcome. Habits and behaviors and recurrent attitudes and failures that come again and again and again. Justification is the basis I stand on in the hope that I can make some progress there. It doesn't come in pieces. It comes once for all at the beginning. So take heart if you feel like you're in process and you're only becoming, you are. You're becoming what you are in Christ. Here's the second implication. God himself will see to it that you persevere in faith, not in perfection, but in persevering faith, in persisting faith. God will see to that. This perseverance that I have just said is so necessary is not finally dependent on you. Now, why do I know that? How do I know that God Almighty is so faithful that he will undertake to work on behalf of the baby beginner believer who's justified and finish what he began by making sure he stays a believer? How do I know that? I link up Romans 4 with Romans 8.30. And Romans 8.30, you remember, says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now take that last phrase. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's as good as done. Glorification means when you inherit the promise and you are swept up finally, totally changed in eternity into the glory of God. That's glorification. And he says, those whom he justified, he glorified. It's as good as done. That's how certain it is. Now, think a minute. If that's true, 
If all the justified are glorified, and there are no dropouts between those two, and if faith which justifies is persevering faith alone, then the only way for your glorification to be sure is for God to see to it that that faith will persevere. Because if he doesn't see to it that that faith does persevere, then it won't persevere because you're so fickle and therefore you will prove not to have been justified. And glorification will abort. If those who are justified are most definitely glorified, and if the faith which justifies is persevering faith, the certainty that attends the connection between justification and glorification must attend perseverance. Your perseverance, saint, is as sure as your justification because your glorification is promised to your justification. Now that's big. That is really big and hugely Satisfying because John Piper has nothing in himself to guarantee that I'm going to wake up a believer tomorrow morning. Nothing. Do you want security? Do you want peace with God? Do you want confidence that you're going to make it? Where are you going to base it if not here? On this great truth that God certifies our perseverance. Now don't, don't overinterpret what I'm saying here. Believers may stray for a season. And God will bring them back. I know that. It says so in James 5. Those who bring back a sinner from his way will save his soul from perishing. Well, you wouldn't need to bring him back if you weren't straying. We stray. Don't overinterpret this perseverance. God fights for you. There may be clouds that gather over your life. Faith may falter for a season so that you have to pray out and cry out in moments where you're hanging on by your fingernails. I believe, help my unbelief. And God comes through. Have you ever wondered why Peter made it and did not forsake the Lord utterly like Judas? Luke twenty-two thirty-two answers that question crystal clear. Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I... The Lord of the universe have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. After you have turned, strengthen your brethren. That's authority. Yes, you're going to deny me. Yes, if I didn't pray for you, you'd be a Judas. 
But I will pray for you and I will not let you be a Judas. I know you're going to deny me. I know how many times. I know exactly when. And I know you're going to weep when I look at you. And I know you're coming back. And I build my church on rock-like faith like this. That's authority. And he speaks that way over every justified, sinning saint in this room. And that's your hope. And that's your only hope. If you think that you can stay a Christian and keep on believing without that kind of Jesus-like authoritative help, you have a high view of you that ought to come down. It's a glorious truth, folks. It's glorious truth. So here's the last implication. All of us who have made a start in the Christian life should be vigilant to keep the faith. Here I'm warning against another misunderstanding. Oh, how, how vulnerable truth and glorious truth is to misunderstanding. You write an editorial for the paper, you know it ain't coming back the way you wrote it. That's okay. That's okay. Just open your mouth and say what needs to be said wherever you are. It'll, it'll be an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing and the aroma of life to life to those who are being saved. Just expect that. Say what has to be said. Here's one of the misunderstandings we must avoid, and then I'm done. When I say what I've just said, that your security hangs not on your initial act of faith, but on God's preservation of that faith by fighting for you and praying for you and bringing you back again and again and again and keeping his own. He knows his sheep, his sheep follow him and nobody can pluck them out of his hands. When you have a God like that, it doesn't mean there's no connection between your perseverance and your justification or your perseverance and your glorification. You must persevere. Your life depends on your perseverance. So don't draw the conclusion from a false doctrine of eternal security that says, believe once, once saved, always saved, go out and live like the devil because Piper teaches that. It's not what I teach. Once saved, always saved is absolutely true. Provided you take it as including... Once believing, always believing. And a believing that not you, but God preserves. Then you can say, and you'll be right. Once saved, always saved. But that includes a warfare. First Timothy 6.12, fight the fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. When you get up in the morning and you don't feel very trusting of God, fight Fight! And what's the weapon? The Word of God. Take the promises of God. Meditate on the promises of God. Savor the promises of God until there wells up a fresh new believing. And that will be the work of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to will and to do His good purpose. And thank God it's God and not you. Though you must, you must fight. So, here we are at the end. Now, let me just try to think. I wonder if there are any in the room who are not enjoying this peace with God, are not enjoying 
this wonderful security that he means for you to have. Absolute, wonderfully freeing, risk-taking security. Do you have it? Are you enjoying it? And I can think of two reasons why you might not be. One, you've never trusted Jesus as the forgiver of your sins and the one who fulfills all his promises to you. Just have never trusted him. But there's a second reason, so don't write yourself off too quickly here as a believer. The second reason is there are real clouds that settle over believers. There are dark seasons when a cloud comes between you and the glory and they settle on you. God allows them for his various wise reasons. We don't always understand. And that too may be one of your experiences right now. Not that you haven't believed and that deep down you aren't a believer, but that there's this terrible cloud between you and God. So here's my closing exhortation. It's the same to the unbeliever and the clouded believer. Look to Jesus. I've tried to paint a picture of him before you. He's the one who in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, with a little mustard seed of baby-like faith, imparts all of his righteousness to you once and for all. Look to him. Look to that. And he's the one who undertakes not to leave you alone with that, but to come in and pray for you and work for you and keep you and love you and make you persevere to the end and bring you out from under that cloud, perhaps under the preaching of this word this morning. And as you walk into that beautiful sunshine and hear him say, the heavens are telling the glory of God. So I plead, look to Jesus. Look to him mainly in the cross. Look to him as he reveals himself in the sky. And believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, would you call now all of us in this room to faith? Would you open our eyes to see the glory of the salvation wrought for us in Jesus Christ? You are a great God. You are a merciful God. You are a patient God. Otherwise, we'd be so undone with the slowness of our sanctification. Lord, assure us today in our own faith that you are with us and for us. And thus give us new strength to fight on, I pray, and thus preserve your people. Would you stand? This benediction is the most glorious doxology in the New Testament. It's all about what we've been saying. I want you to receive it from him, through me, from Jude 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you without blemish before the throne of his glory with rejoicing. To the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and dominion and authority and power before all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.